Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we will begin our conversation on the music of Final Fantasy VI. It's composed by Nobuo Uematsu. There's a lot to get into here. Uh, I actually want to begin with a couple of big questions, which we normally do just for the major themes of any given game. But it has been said by a number of people, including one of my favorite resources over at Resonant Arc, that this soundtrack is arguably Uematsu's greatest work, which is quite the claim to make. Um, but for me, it's almost not enough. I would go one step further and suggest that this has as good an argument as any soundtrack I've ever listened to to being the greatest of all time, whether it's a television show, film, video game. If the point of a soundtrack is to support the story and characters and make them fully realized, I think this soundtrack does a better job of accomplishing that than what I would probably consider to be in second place, especially if I'm going outside of Uematsu's work, which would be Star Wars Episode Five by John Williams. This is, for me, just a little bit better than that. Uh, so, so that's the big question. I'll be trying to justify my claim here, support the claim, evidence the claim, that this is the greatest soundtrack of all time. So, uh-huh. yeah. Right. Well, how? so, so I was going to ask, and then you got into it, I was going to say, how do you measure such a thing? So if it's supporting the narrative, if, if it's uh, pushing the theme, uh, if, it, if it's referencing the characters, those are the things we're looking for for a, a greatest soundtrack of all time. But then also I wonder, uh, you know, uh, what did you just say? Star Wars Empire Strikes Back is going to be number two for you. But also, I mean, that soundtrack is by necessity shorter. Like Uematsu's got more time to work with. Do you think that, are there park adjusted stats for that? Oh, that's good. I like that little sports reference. Uh, yeah, and that's of course going to be a lot of the messiness that we're going to get into here when we're trying to compare soundtracks to others. Um, I think if you wanted to go wider and and make it so that the volume was about the same, you could just say, how about all of the Star Wars together? But at the same time, as I'm about to get into here, I think one of the major pluses of this and and really the next several Uematsu soundtracks is that there's so much of it. I don't want to take away from the degree of difficulty in composing for this original soundtrack 61 pieces of music, three hours and eight minutes of music for this Super Nintendo game. Now, we're not going to discuss every single one, but I tried to cut out as many as I could, and we're still going to end up discussing 53, because I believe those 53 pieces of music each deserve at least a little point of analysis. So... Yeah, I I do think you've got to say on the one hand, those soundtracks are much shorter. On the other hand, Uematsu still had to compose three plus hours of music for this game, four and a half hours for the next game, and that music doesn't make itself. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. And the other thing I want to mention about that in favor of maybe even this soundtrack over the next couple to follow for Uematsu is there is an insane lack of filler. And filler sometimes is okay. Anyone who's ever bought a soundtrack because they love the main theme of the movie or the show has probably done so and then ended up fast-forwarding through much of it or skipping several tracks sure. till it gets to the part because yeah. you don't want to hear all the background sounds while the characters are talking that are just long notes played out. Right, and that, I have often felt like Maybe those scenes didn't need music. Maybe we could have just had the background stuff. But it's music that you just don't notice, I guess. On the other hand, sometimes a really good background piece, like the uh, the Wii menu, or, or the, the menu music for the Nintendo Wii, I should say. Sure. That, <laughs> that better describes it. Is noteworthy, I think, even though it is sort of in that genre of music not meant to be noticed. Yeah, there's there's a cinematic reason for things like that. And I do think there are filler tracks that are good. And then there are filler tracks that are just there so that there's sound, as, as you were kind of pointing out. But what's amazing to me about Final Fantasy VI is I was looking for the filler. And we'll mention one or two that might fit in that category. But for the most part, there just isn't any. Where 7, 8, 9, and 10, I love those soundtracks. There's filler in there, for sure. So... What are we leaving out? We will not be discussing the victory fanfare, 42 seconds of, <laughs> you know, a, a, re yeah, a reinterpretation of something we've heard before. Same thing with the techno de chocobo. That'll okay. save us a minute and a half. Uh, again, he did reimagine. He put in work to this stuff. He reiterated these ideas. Uh, the prelude, again, not original to this soundtrack. That cuts out about two and a half minutes. We haven't done for any of the games the little ditties that he creates when there's a, a the party dies in this game it's called rest in sure. peace it's a 31 second little ditty I, I figured at one point maybe we'd go through and just discuss all of them throughout the games just the when you die music <laughs> that'll be a fun episode right yeah i know right uh and then we already did our episode on the opera and so we won't be discussing any of those four movements that saves us about 16 minutes of musical time and that my friends is it those are the pieces we were able to leave out uh, other than that they pretty much all need to be discussed we've split them up into 27 places and events tracks and 26 character tracks we'll have to get to the characters on the next episode I am a bit tickled that you just spent two minutes talking about the music we're not going to talk about <laughs> That's how good this soundtrack is. I just also wanted to point out for reference that, again, this is a, a soundtrack that's over three hours long. Pink Floyd's The Wall is an 80-minute and 42-second album. The Beatles' White Album, a double album, clocks in at just over 93 minutes. So when you're talking about great works from great artists, the volume of quality that we're talking about here is just hard to find whether you're keeping it inside soundtracks or even looking at some of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. All right, let's start at the beginning with the piece of music that sets the tone for the entire game as a stage play, a piece called, appropriately, Omen. 
So we talked about how it's important that a soundtrack somehow supports the narrative or pushes a theme. And this piece really does that. It, it's the piece you see uh, combined with the storm. The storm is meant to be in the real world, or maybe it's that storm between our, our world and the Esper world. Uh, it really does give us a sense of foreboding that some big tragedy happened in the past and we are on the precipice of repeating a senseless and deadly mistake. So because this piece feels so big and om ominous and epic, it at once gives us a sense of what has happened, what is coming, and that in a way this is a stage play. It's, a dra it's drama. It's a big dramatic opening to, to emphasize all of that. Yeah, and I think the organ sells that really well. I think it's purposefully an homage to Phantom of the Opera, which has the big pipe organ as a kind of central, almost character in that story, telling us right away Final Fantasy VI is an opera, there's going to be melodrama, we've got big church bells, and uh, then as the, the big loudness kind of goes away into that quiet little piano piece that allows a, a narrator to read are opening to us even though there isn't one they provide that space uh, and, and i just love the way it gets quiet there and then of course it goes into the terra march which we're we're going to leave the discussion of that melody for the next episode but i do also want to point out that this is one of the few pieces on the soundtrack that does not loop it has a very specific beginning middle and end it goes through these stages and it's very specifically meant to put you in a place to set you up for the story and even the way it ends uh, coming out of Tara's theme as the credits roll is you don't hear T Tara's theme doesn't end that way any other time so this omen piece is one complete idea that sets you into this world just perfectly Then, as we are in the world of Final Fantasy VI, one of the first things that Uematsu does musically to give us an indication that this is not the same Renaissance, medieval type of fantasy world that we've been in before, is the Minds of Narsh is a jazzy, bluesy piece of music that uses instruments that would not have been common in medieval times. It's putting us into those second industrial revolution times, the type of music that you would hear there. It's interesting to me that the Narsh music is kind of bluesy. It, it reminds me of that, of that sort of work song of, of going down to work in the coal mines and another day older and deeper in debt. Though the minds of Narsh don't seem to be that same sort of capitalistic you know the fat cats in charge and the poor people working but it does sort of feel you know it's it's in the north it's uh to the, nor the top of the map uh it's encased in ice um the, the poles don't seem to work the way that poles work on a regular planet but at least here being in the north means you're cold right so it does have not quite that same you know, we're, we're getting eaten by the rich here, but it does have that sort of isolated feel, a, a little a little colder, a little quieter, uh, a little more huddled in on itself. Yeah, I, I like that explanation of it. I, there's a lot of 
empty space. In fact, this could, you know, walk into filler background territory pretty quickly. It's basically two chords on some strings and a couple of notes on a stand-up bass that that puts you into that kind of space you were talking about. For me, it would musically be fine, uh, but not all that interesting until we get this crazy quick, rhythmically interesting piano line near the end of it that gives it a ton of flavor and character and adds mystery to the equation and makes it a little more oppressive and isolated, I think, like you were talking about. But yeah, just a really interesting piece of music that could have faded into the background, but because it's unique among the sounds that we've typically heard from Uematsu and from these games, I think it stands out a bit. It also serves to emphasize not only the the area, not only the region, but Terra's contemplativeness. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know where she is or why she's there. And it, it, it serves to underscore that mystery. I think you could do slam poetry over this piece and just, you know, kind of some, some slow talking jive and someone snapping their fingers and going, yeah, I'm thinking hard. <laughs> All right, the next place that you go to once you kind of get out of this stuff, you eventually are, are climbing Mount Colts. This is a perfect opportunity for me to introduce another sports concept into the conversation, but that is the deep bench. Uh, To me, it's crazy. Mount Colts is a piece of music that is a very simple one line that gets kind of repeated over and over again, but it moves up and down uh, the scale. I think it changes keys once or twice. It changes instruments, but it's very, very simple, and yet... It remains remarkably engaging, the way the melody climbs, just like you would climb a mountain. There are even people who've done reinterpretations of this. So for me, while you would never say Mount Colts is one of Uematsu's best pieces of music, there's something about it that sticks with you and just reminds you that even in the smallest of places, when he's not creating the best of melodies, he's still creating something interesting that can work on a lot of different levels. And now we come to a couple of personal favorites. Uh, Some of the best place-slash-event music that I think Uematsu has ever done. Two pieces of music that have been reinterpreted many, many times. In fact, even in their own official reinterpretations on the grand finale and the piano collections, you're going to hear both the Phantom Forest and the Phantom Train because they're just so exceptionally moody and perfect. Yeah, like the other ones we've talked about, these pieces do a fantastic job of emphasizing the the space, right? If this character is a world, and no, if this world is a character, and we talked about the world having its own character arc, right? These pieces just, they do a really good job of saying, here's what this place is like. Not only do you get the spooky forest background, but you get the spooky forest music. 
and not only do you get this train with the Kachunka and the ghosts and such, but you get this really cool piece. And uh, yeah, they, they both do a fantastic job of just underscoring where you are and why you're there. Yeah, and I, I, because we talked about them during the plot episodes, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say other than they really do drive home those scenes. And I think anybody who remembers, you know, the Phantom Train, you can't think about that sequence of events without recalling the music. It's so important to the mood and the feel of everything that happens there. And so, yeah, for me, th those are just... Two of the best. If they, if they ever come on, whatever version of them they are, they're two I will never turn off. Now we move to one of my favorite decisions that Uematsu made on this soundtrack. And we'll talk about Gao's theme when we get there. But I think it's important to note that the Velt is not Gao's theme, even though it could feel like it. It has much more of the raw aggression, the African drums. What's really interesting to me is this mix of cultures. The percussion is very, very African, but the strings and at one point a, a kind of oboe clarinet instrument that play are very Middle Eastern sounding. And so you've got this exceptional mix of sounds that you're not going to hear in too many other places. And again, the Velt is... I used to just go there in the game just to walk around and listen to the music. One of the things I like about that is that the Velt music continues to play even when you get into combat, which underscores the gameplay in, in one way because you don't get experience on the Velt, right? And so it's also... It's a hint at how the game works. It's, it's just a, a different way than overworld music normally works. And so I really appreciate that just because the region works differently. Uh, I also like that, yeah, it does sound different than this sort of Eurocentric medieval-like music we've had in Final Fantasy before has worked. It is a bit generically African in a way, which feels kind of weird to say because Africa is a huge continent, right? There is, there is no African culture. In fact, when you're trying to talk about African culture, we, we usually go regional, right? Like South Africa, Central Africa, and so on. And even then, uh, these are very big places with lots of different cultures. So I think that to, to try to capture a feel, again, you know, we're gonna, a lot of capturing of the feels, as it were, uh, throughout this episode. I think this piece does a good job of that, 
of, of trying to capture the feel of this big, expansive place with lots of different things going on. And I guess I was leaving some of my critiques for the end, like I did with the Chrono Trigger soundtrack, but as a little foreshadowing, uh, before we get there, I will say that the Velt is also one of the pieces I feel like holds up the best in terms of the chiptune MIDI technology, some of this stuff. I do prefer other versions. If there's a version of it on, you know, with a full orchestra or on a real piano, most of these songs, I'll take that. But the Velt, I'll listen to the original soundtrack version every time. And it actually is probably better than any of the reinterpretations I've heard. It's original version, the instruments, I think are just perfect for the sound. And they really fill up a room if you put it on a big system. It's one of the best for, for just listenability. All right, the next piece is one that I considered not discussing at all because I have never in my life said, hey, I'm going to throw on the Serpent Trench. And a lot of these other pieces of music, I would. The Phantom Force, Phantom Train, if I'm feeling it, I'm going to go find that piece of music and listen to it. The Serpent Trench only plays one time in the game, but as I went back and listened to it, I recognized this is, again, a unique sound. We don't hear this out of Uematsu very often, and it's quite unusual in its execution, largely rhythmic as opposed to melodic. He, he tends to make most of his music melody-driven, and this is not. But maybe the closest we're going to come to filler on this episode, I still think, though, it's an interesting piece of music that can be reinterpreted in a lot of interesting ways. So another one that just kind of fits into having a deep bench uh, category. Let's move now away from the specific chronological events of the game and just do uh, the town music. The bass town music for Final Fantasy VI is a piece we've discussed many, many times. In fact, going back several games because I think it's probably just both of our favorites. It's just the kids run through the city or back in the day they used to run through the city corner. <laughs> Right, right. Um, I think it's the perfect piece of town music, whether you're, it's the original version on a piano, however you do this, the melody puts you on cobblestone streets in a world full of magic and monsters and steampunk. It's it's just perfect. I know if you, I'm, I said before we came on the podcast, I was going to have to just think of words. The biggest challenge for these episodes is going to be coming up with different positive words to say about pieces of music for Uematsu, but I do think Kids Run Through the City is basically perfect. The same way that Howard Shore conjures the Shire with that particular piece of music, or Joe Hisashi conjures that sort of tranquil town life music, uh, particularly in Castle in the Sky. Yeah, this this is just a great piece. It, it does the job. It it tells us where we are without even having to see it. Or what the people here are like. And yeah, it's, you know, I, I tend not to choose favorites, as we have discussed. But if I did, this would certainly score high on my rubric. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, we probably could do top 10 
pieces of town music in Final Fantasy and Chrono, in our in our multiverse, whatever we're including, <laughs> and both of us would have this in our top three. If you're not on the humble cobblestone streets living the life of a regular person, but instead are in the upper-class aristocracy and are a purveyor of fine arts and the opera and not caring too much about the encroaching of fascism, you might find yourself in Jador. music that plays I, I've already said the word favorite too many times and we're like halfway through this thing I don't mm-hmm. the magic house uh, it, it checks all the boxes it checks <laughs> every box I love this melody again it, it the listenability of the original soundtrack version it holds up particularly the sample that is used for the harpsichord that comes in and gives it that super aristocratic feel um, I could listen to this piece all day. The way the melodies play off of each other and trade off from strings to harpsichord, uh, even the way the second time through. Most of these tracks uh, on the original sound version, they play twice through. I've mentioned how they almost all loop. Other than the first one we talked about, they do. And uh, for the Magic House, in its second go-round, it adds all this extra stuff that just gives it vibrant flavor and color and it i get i get this song stuck in my head i was, I was singing it before we came on here uh whenever i hear it <laughs> i will walk around going boom 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 i, I love, it, love it love it yeah i don't know how to how much else to analyze that one just to say i love it so much I do think it is interesting that the harpsichord has become the the Peter and the Wolf version of aristocracy. You hear the harpsichord and you think, oh, rich people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how that's worked out, right? And and I think in this particular setting it makes sense because it would be, you know, these are the people kind of holding on to the old world and the, the kind of broke uh, system of properness and appropriateness and sure. Uh, it, it feels more out of touch when you put it even further back in that setting when the haves and the have-nots was the difference between having anything at all and having nothing. Right. Then we have two other pieces of town music that I absolutely love, and I love the way that they work together. And we talked about both of these in the plot because they're so important. The first... Under Martial Law, which is perfectly named, uh, plays when you're in these towns and cities that have been occupied by the Empire. And it uses a a form that I 
that you see a lot in music it's very satisfying and that is to basically introduce a melodic concept play it twice on the third time you've got a little variation of that and then you go back to exactly how the melody was before an AABA form very satisfying you hear it in music everywhere what I think is really interesting about it is that the next piece of music also uses the same form in order to sell its point even harder and show you how the world has fallen. So both the pieces under martial law and from that day on use this form of melody and in that way kind of tie themselves to each other. When I think of the under martial law piece, I tend to think of Locke's chapter. Uh, where he's sneaking around South Figaro. I feel like it lends itself toward the, uh, the sort of spy movie aspect that particular chapter has. Uh, so I think it underscores Locke's tactics and sort of the uh, staying under the radar of the oppressive fascist regime, regime that's uh, set up headquarters in your place. Uh, so I think that's why that piece works particularly well. Yeah, and, and I think then the from that day on just kind of takes that concept and makes it even darker to give you the sense of it's a different kind of living under oppression. It's not that the soldiers are there occupying your house. It's that there's someone with extreme power from far away who will blow you up if you don't do exactly what he says. It's it's There's a little bit less hope in it. What I do like, though, is that the so I mentioned the A-A-B-A form, when from that day on hits its B section, if I can time it up right now, I'll, I'll have it right around as I'm talking here, it gives you that little bit of hope. It gets very majory and kind of looks forward and it's like, oh, the returners are coming, but it's, it's still very oppressive. Speaking of oppressive pieces of town music, we're still technically talking towns here. There is one that it's the same, whether it's under martial law or from that day on or from this day and that from the very first day. And that is the piece of music that plays when you visit the town of Zozo, where it's always raining. Yeah. And so rain uh -huh. is a part of the piece of music called Slam Shuffle. We've talked throughout uh, our discussion of Final Fantasy VI about how class disparity is handled. Zozo, the town of thieves and liars uh, that is all falling apart and rusting, is not that far from Jador, which is the town of the, the rich and prosperous and those who patronize the arts. And so I think it's kind of interesting that Final Fantasy VI chooses to have this particular uh, dichotomy set up in such a way that rich people get the harpsichord and the poor people get the rain. Uh, right. you know, the, the rich people get the auction house and the poor people are liars. Right. So there's, I don't know if Final Fantasy VI is trying to say something about class disparity, but I think that these two particular pieces of music definitely emphasize 
whatever these differences are. Absolutely. And like you were saying at the beginning, that's sort of the genius of this soundtrack. So much of the story is sold through its music. The Super Nintendo, we talked about how they couldn't have Ultima weapon because the word Ultima was too long and it had to be taken down to Atma. Well, there's stuff like that all over this game. You would have to assume a ton of limitations for how much characters can say, what you can tell through visual cues. So much of it is sold through the music. So yeah, you get a very real sense of the clean and proper and upscale, but there's still obviously a lot of problems in Jador yeah. and music as a darkness that sells that as well. And then here with Slam Shuffle, it's gritty and rainy, and it, it's uh, got a lot of swing notes that those ba da 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 does. Yep. It's jazzy, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also a, a bit more uplifting and upbeat than Jador. Like they still have a realness to them that's in this music that that absolutely sells it. And again, I think a place we would go to as kids, just like, man, let's go to Zozo. Why? Music is awesome. Well, and I said just a moment ago that I'm not sure Final Fantasy VI has anything to say about class disparity, but we talked all about how it absolutely does several episodes ago. So yeah, I, I think that, I'm not sure that the music specifically is about class disparity, but the music is definitely a difference between prim and proper and uh, swinging. Right. And then I think it's up to the interpretation of the listener, you know, which one of those things is going to be more palatable huh. to them. Valorized, perhaps. Mm. Oh, I like coming up with some good... See, now we're working our vocabularies a little bit. The next piece of music that I've got here on the list does take us away specifically from cities and towns, though it is a one place piece of music and Ira I'm going to use the word again and I have to because it, it is an absolute personal favorite the Magitech research facility god that's a cool piece I it, I don't even know uh, Deep. this isn't even deep bench this is stupid good for a piece of music that is just there and gone right well, and, and not only is it a very interestingly put together piece, it is drastically different from everything we've heard so far in this game. So it serves a similar function to uh, when the the overworld music in Final Fantasy V, uh, where you're in the first world versus the second world. Or when you finally go to the moon in Final Fantasy IV, that particular piece is so different from everything else that's come. And so it pushes the, uh, we're in the belly of the beast. We're not in Kansas anymore. Right, this place is different, uh, and you best watch your step. Yeah, and it's it's both dark and foreboding, but has these uplifting moments when it goes into its B section with the strings that are sort of more classic Final Fantasy adventure hero music. But the main crux of it, even it being built on its rhythms on a bass line that absolutely slaps. Uh, on just where it chooses to, I keep saying it chooses, like the song. Again, this was composed by a person, the same person who composed all of this other stuff. It is mind-blowing to me that his mind can work this way, that he could put this piece in the same game where he composed an opera, and that they're actually relatively close to each other. 
I don't, yeah, this is one of those ones you, you, you can't break down too much or you look silly trying to do it. For, for me personally, if I was trying to make a list of top 50 Nobuo Uematsu tracks, which I've tried to do and it's impossible, um, this would be on there for me, even though I, I don't think it would be for a lot of people. I've read similar such lists, and that's just talking about how much music he's made that's so good over the years. You know, I don't think this is a, a lot of people's favorites, but because of its unique sound, the industrial tones, he, he works in industrial tones in a few other pieces, but not quite like this. There's, I don't know very many other pieces of music that sound like this, period. So let's move from that into a couple of pieces that very specifically sound like lots of other things uh, on purpose. They are ragtime piano pieces that are very specifically mimicking Scott Joplin and that type of turn of the century piano playing, welcome to the theater, welcome to the opera house, welcome to the bar. Uh, they're 12-bar blues. There's another form we can talk about. Uh, if you don't know what a 12-bar is, you'll, you'll hear them everywhere. It's not just in blues pieces of music, but you vamp on one chord for a little while. You've got your one, your three, and your five, and you just play a big one for a little while, then you hit your five, then your three, then your one. Got yourself a little 12-bar blues. So here's an example of a 12-bar blues and Johnny Seabad. That's your 12-bar blues. And you'll hear that just about everywhere, but it's a, a fun little melody. Uh, again, you can hear it on real piano or on the sort of MIDI piano. Great little thumping piece of music to listen to at any time. In the same way that uh, the train in the Phantom Forest helps to emphasize the, the kind of technological time period we are in, uh, sort of like you said, turn of the century, uh, industrial revolution, this style of music sort of ties into that same idea of we are we're, we're forging ahead to the future of you know what what could happen next maybe we'll have steam-powered airships or or maybe we'll have uh, a transatlantic railroad transatlantic no transcontinental railroad uh, maybe we'll have transatlantic flights uh, there's no Atlantic Ocean uh, in this particular world but but that idea, I think, is emphasized by these these sort of jangly piano pieces. Yeah, and though I lied and spinach rag is not a 12-bar, it, it fits very much in that uh, place as well. It's the piece of music that introduces the opera section of the game, plays as you go into the opera house, and they, they very much represent that, absolutely. And while neither of them are especially original, in their conception or execution, they're both just really, really good interpretations of this idea and are highly, highly listenable to this day. They're also kind of representative of the, uh, we talked about the harpsichord earlier, right? And how it sort of represents the nobility or the, or the rich class. Sometimes these sort of jangly piano pieces are representative of a more commoner class. And we talked in, uh, in the art episode about how steampunk is as much about the performing arts and how the performing arts become available to 
the lower classes, to the masses, and that the masses uh, in some way begin to participate in the performing arts themselves because now we've got a little more leisure time, right? We're, all not, we're not all just subsistence farmers. We're not all just working to survive day to day, which means we've got, we've got leisure time to play games or, or listen to the radio or play our pianos. So I'd like to introduce another category of uematsu music that I may at one point try to force us to rank. And I don't know how in the world we're going to come up with a, a proper definition for this, but his most underrated pieces of music. <laughs> oh, man. How, All like right. that? how would we even I don't know. measure? I know. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous. But I'll tell you why I thought of that, because... The following piece that plays when you were on the floating continent, again, cleverly titled The Floating Continent, mm -hmm. is one that I never thought of. Again, going back to, I can't remember which piece I said about it, or The Serpent Trench. I'm, I'm going to go listen to that. It's one of my favorite pieces. A lot of character melodies. So just go, I want to hear that character's piece. Uh, or some of the bigger, more well-known tracks from 7 or 8, or even this game, or from 4. You go, yeah, I want to hear Theme of Love. And I've never thought, I need to hear The Floating Continent. I don't know that I've ever heard a rearrangement, a remix of all the times, of all the albums we've had and all the years we've spent listening to this music. I don't know that I've ever heard this one discussed as particularly excellent or just shown love in any other kind of ways that a lot of these other pieces have. And as I revisited it for this conversation, I found myself blown away by its mixture of old world instruments and new world instruments, the way its melody never resolves quite when you think it should. It drags on, it falls off the table at one point, going from very high in a scale to very low in a scale, and its loop is one big empty piece of space before it just jumps right back into its chaos and madness. Uh, the Floating Continent is the piece I have found myself returning to the most as I've revisited this soundtrack for this podcast. I would just invite anyone who's got a decent sound system to play that song, turn it way up, and try to hear all of it, everything that's going on in there. That this piece of music is not considered even remotely close to one of Uematsu's best compositions is a testament to an insane genius, an insane level of genius. This piece of music is brilliant. It's nothing short of brilliant. And... It escaped my recognition for a long time. So I hope people will give that one a, a bit of a deeper listen. The next piece we're going to discuss 
also did the same. And I think there are a lot of people who hold this bias because as you cruise around the world of balance, you are treated to one of the greatest melodies Uematsu's ever written. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. But when the world is destroyed, you end up walking around the world to something very different, something very dark and oppressive, something that's not necessarily pleasant at first. And I think there are a lot of people that don't like this piece of music specifically because of that, because of the way it's contrasted. But I've come to love the dark world. I like this piece for the same reason that I just mentioned with, uh, with the Magitech Research Facility piece in that it shows us something different, right? In the, in the difference between the first world and the second world of Final Fantasy V, we go from, it, it's the same world, but it has gone through its big character change uh, so that it would be such a different piece, that it would have echoes of the, the future world from, from Chrono Trigger, that it's sort of just lingers in that the world is still alive but only because Kefka has chosen not to kill it yet so it lingers yeah, it sort of drags along yeah, right? yeah. Uh, in, in a way refusing to die but also not really able to end things on its own terms yeah it's got those heavy plodding organ chords and a very loose melody over the top of it, just a piano playing some notes that you kind of said in the Chrono Trigger episode, it, it sounds less like a person purposefully playing an instrument and more like the elements are acting on it. Like it's just barely making a recognizable piece of music. Even on the original sound version, like the wind never goes away and it can start to grate in your ears. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I've seen this done live at a smaller version of the Distant Worlds type of concerts, and it's just so moody and dark, and it's dissonant on purpose. And some people have a difficult time listening to music that is dissonant on purpose, and I totally understand that. And like I said, this used to be my, by far my least favorite track. I would skip it every time I used to listen to this sound track as a kid, and I, I've come, it's one of my favorites, one of my top 28 favorites. <laughs> Your top 20 has like Goodness. 50 or 60 pieces in it, though, so let's just keep that in mind. This guy's so good. Hey, why don't I talk about a piece I'm not especially thrilled with? Again, I could have just left this off, but I think since I'm just showering love on everything else, one critique I've always had is I feel like Uematsu's airship music for the large part is I don't know, hokey, cheesy? Hokey. Um, yeah, I said it. I said it. <laughs> it is adventurous and courageous. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, it is exactly. Um, and it is. The saxophone used for the airship blackjack and, you know, it's, it's fun. I don't despise it by any means, but it's definitely one that I skip when listening to. I don't know. Are you, are you a big fan? Anything to say for the first airship music? I feel like the uh, the airship music in Final Fantasy VI is one of the most direct calls to the optimism of Final Fantasy V. You know, and we discussed this in those episodes, not that Final Fantasy V doesn't have its dark moments, it absolutely does, but it still has this overall sense of 
here we go. We're gonna do this ahead on our way, right? And I feel like the the airship music does that um, because in a world where things are kind of oppressive and and everything is kind of difficult, uh, sometimes you need the, those lines of optimism. I agree. It's definitely more uplifting than anything else we've listened to so far. Um, and like I said, I don't, I don't despise it by any means. There's, I don't think there's any Uematsu music that I just hate. But it's... Yeah, if, I, if I'm listening through, I'll probably skip it more often than not. I will not be skipping the other airship music, which has one of my favorite bass lines he's ever written. This piece is really good. Searching for Friends, we talked about it when it happened because of how it comes out in the story, how it really is that final... It's so dark, but forward-moving. That's what I love about it. Is it's, it's both of those things in equal measure. But also, listen to the bass line the whole way through. It slaps. And when it, the, the song loops, the walk-up it does to bring you back to the beginning of the song is one of the most uplifting, forward-moving musical moves I've ever heard. we come to something truly rare my brother <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh filler um but as you were talking about still good filler it it sets a mood and that's the piece of music that plays for the fanatics the piece called the fanatics as they circle the fanatics tower um, it's mm-hmm. just a moody piece with some vocal samples some pipe organ it's dark it's moody goes nowhere just like the people walking around in circles going nowhere so it's it's apt right but not one you would choose to listen to uh, for more than a handful of seconds right as a piece of music on its own uh, i would say that it continues uh, a bit of that theme from omen with the pipe organs and it also hints at what's to come with dancing mad yeah, it's definitely a, a piece that ties those thematic elements together. And th- there's one I skipped earlier because it's just Omen reinterpreted, but it's a piece called Catastrophe that plays a couple of times throughout that helps that through line all the way uh, to the end of the story. So you're absolutely right. It fits as a light motif with the Omen, Catastrophe, and then the beginning of Dancing Mad. And the final place that you visit in Final Fantasy VI is, of course, Kafka's Tower, which is another piece that I like a lot, though in hindsight, I feel like it's a less interesting execution of ideas that were going on in the Floating Continent piece that I talked about before and made it such a big deal about. But again, it's this amalgamation of there's electronic sounds, there's electric guitar sounds, there's old-world string and trumpet sounds, and... Again, I would make the argument for Kefka's Tower, while it's not 
exceptional to me. It wouldn't be on any top lists of much of anything. It's still a piece of music that doesn't really sound like much of anything else. It has its just its completely own place in Uematsu's work, in this world, and in all of the Final Fantasy franchise. So one of the things I like about this piece, and I think I said this uh, an episode or two ago, is that it is cautiously heroic. Like here is the last dungeon. We're about to take on the god of madness and nihilism. And that's scary, but also we're pretty impressive. So we might be able to manage this. It's not as heroic as a head on our way because this might not work. And things have already gone very very poorly for the entire world on the other hand we are the warriors of light and uh there there is a strong history of the warriors of light being able to manage things yeah yeah very a very clever piece of music that just works strings and trumpets and electronic music and all of these things together to yeah create that unique feel i think you're right that it's it is hopeful oddly enough despite how dark and foreboding it is okay i've got a another category of uematsu music to introduce that will stay with us for several games now and i'm going to loosely label this hurry up music i think there's even a piece in final fantasy 7 that's called hurry up <laughs> and especially as the games become more and more cinematic we'll start to hear these pieces that are just mainly supposed to create tension have a lot of movement uh, a lot of frenetic energy a lot of kinetic energy and the unforgiven is again i'll say the word one of my favorites in this category because it doesn't fall into filler territory where some of the ones in the future will it can be used either for an intense moment of rage, and of course, I always associated it with the first time you hear it is when Cyan loses his mind after his family has been murdered and just rushes into an enemy camp head first. It also plays, I believe, when the blackjack is crashing and a few other moments where there's just supposed to be a lot of high tension and anxiety. The strings in the background are just going absolutely crazy. Um, the, the heavy bumps on the rhythm get you into that angry, excited, energetic mode. Like I said, because you associate it so much with that moment with Cyan, I, it always gets my heart racing. And if our 
Our earlier definition of what makes for a good soundtrack includes, does it underscore what's going on in the story? And you're right, that moment with Cyan, when the blackjack's going down, when you're not sure you're going to escape after defeating Kefka, it does the job several times throughout the story. And finally, of course, there is battle music. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. I, I don't know how. After five games of starting with this baseline, he keeps coming up with this stuff. And what's most interesting to me about the baseline battle music, it, not the baseline, but the, <laughs> the battle one uh-huh. Uh-huh. of Final Fantasy VI, I can't put my finger on what separates it, other than there's an electric guitar kind of in the background bringing it out of that medieval renaissance stuff. But the first five, while they're all different in their own ways, I would put them all in the same genre. Even though this has the same bass line, I don't know what genre of music this is. The trumpet part and the, the strings that come in for the B section sound a little more Middle Eastern to me. Again, I think that's just sort of he was on a kick of globe trotting and borrowing more sounds from around the world. But this is a really interesting melody for a piece of battle music. I will say, probably not my favorite of the first six that have this bass line, but it's just so difficult to categorize because it is very different from the others. What does probably make its way into my top three of battle musics, or I guess boss battle, if you wanted to do, and you very easily could, you'd have to separate them out. You could do top 10 battle music and then top 10 boss battle music. And then top 10 final, final boss, boss battle yeah. music. So does Gilgamesh go um, in the final boss or in the boss? Well, then, then there's special boss category sure. where Gilgamesh battle with the four fiends and another piece we're going to talk about here in a minute, battle to the death. So I, I think that goes into that category. And again, you could do a, a top 10. If I'm doing my top 10 pieces of boss battle music, I already know what the top two are. The one from the next game. Uh-huh. Sorry, it just is. Yep. And the decisive battle from Final Fantasy VI. comes in on one of the most epic arpeggios. No kid who's ever played this game and an electric guitar has not played this arpeggio and the full melody. This song kicks forever. You can put on the original version. You can find a metal version, the Black Mages version. The Decisive Battle is a piece of music that anyone who likes, I don't know, music (laughs) should enjoy. I don't know. Is that too broad? Uh 
And then, as we just alluded to a moment ago, this would start becoming a much bigger thing in Final Fantasy IV. He would do it again here in six, which is the special boss battle encounter. This is music that plays basically when you fight Atma Weapon. Right. There may be a, a couple of other times, as we've said, we, we're not completionists with all the boss battles, and we didn't go back and do all of them, but I think that's pretty much it. It's the encounter with Atma, both on the floating continent and at Kefka's Tower. I'm going to go ahead and put this firmly into the underrated category as well, right there with the floating continent. You don't hear a lot of reimaginings, reinterpretations of this one, but it has got a funky, gnarly, rock and roll, metal meets electronica meets symphony melody. It is just a badass, driving piece of music. And... It's funkier. It's more challenging than the other battle music. It doesn't sit in, you know, any kind of comfortable space at all. I also love the way that the electronic notes and guitars bend together. It, it's, again, a unique sound. You don't hear stuff that sounds like this very often. Okay, all done, right? That's it. That's that's all that's of the... the no, yep. wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. There is uh, one more. Perhaps, arguably... The greatest piece of battle music ever composed. I said it. Yeah, but you're saying that against Battle on the Big Bridge, which you spent like 30 minutes talking about 10 or 12 episodes ago. I did. And I could easily spend 30 minutes talking about Dancing Man. (laughs) But we already did that. (laughs) Kind of already already did. Luckily, yeah, I can just point back to a lot of the symbolism that comes from Dante, and we talked about it during the plot, it works very much the same way. There are four movements, just like there are four stages of the boss battle, played mostly on pipe organ, though there's a version of it in Distant Worlds where they add in the full choir, and it's just mind-blowing, gobsmacking. I I don't know what the... If you were a well-versed in all of this, and you said to me, Dancing Mad, it was Uematsu's greatest work. I would not fight you on that. I'd be very interested to hear, you know, it's hard to say one or the other. It's hard to single out, as we've talked about, his pieces sometimes. There's so much good. But I challenged you at one time, just give me ten. What do you think are his ten, <laughs> if not best, most iconic or most memorable, however you might categorize it and this was in your list as it was in mine as it would be in most people's it is an achievement of astounding levels
One of the things that strikes me about this piece is that Final Fantasy VI does such a good job of stacking things against the characters and therefore the player. You know, we get our team together, but there are all these reasons why most of them wouldn't want to even join up to begin with. And then we lose them all, and then we have to regain them. And again, there are plenty of reasons why they might not want to join back up. But all our heroes, and the heroes around the heroes, you know, some of these support characters, have gone through so much. And so one of the reasons Dancing Mad succeeds, to me, is that it it re-emphasizes what a bad person Kefka is, and how this is something that we really do need to do so all the difficult uh, all, all the difficult times all the sacrifices are worth it for at least the very chance of taking on this madness and so it, it is the culmination right all these difficult things have happened and this is the culmination of of obstacles to take on The other thing I love about this piece is that while it's not Kefka's theme, it does have Kefka's theme in it. And I think that the first time I finally realized that, which had to have been the fourth or fifth time I played the game, that it has that little bit of Kefka's theme in it, I was just so extraordinarily thrilled. Yeah, I believe it's in the third movement. I'll, I'll have to line it up as we're talking here, but where... Over the melody on the higher part of the organ, it's the bass line that does the walk up of bump, 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 uh, of Kefka's theme underneath. It's just so cleverly built. Epic as hell, obviously. It begins where we began. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to leave that out, it has the omen sound uh, that, that we heard as we first opened up the game to start this piece at the very end, which was a really smart thing to do, tying in all of the dramatic themes, as you mentioned. And as it goes through, each one of these organ pieces is sort of equal parts slow and then fast it, it's got that kind of as we've talked about it, it wants to oppress you and bring you down make it dark and, and foreboding but also give you a little bit of hey we're fighting you know we're, we, we're doing some stuff here and then you get to the top and we could break down each one of those like maybe in a future episode we will I, I don't even know how to get much deeper into them other than to say that they're all exceptional i really like the um grease knee project on youtube uh the their dude just went and sat in a church one of those huge pipe organs and played this and you just let that sound wash over you it's absolutely amazing i remember playing this 
track for Dad one time, actually, and he uh, characterized it as a challenge on Bach. Huh. I remember interpreting that a bit negatively. Oh, and I don't think he's challenging anybody. He's like, like, no, 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 no. Like, that's a good thing. Imagine being able to musically sort of enter that Takata and Fugue category in your own way, present it for something that still works inside of a story, and have it be a cohesive 17-minute-long piece of Super Nintendo music that people still can't get over to this day. So after about 12 minutes of the epic, but still to some degree subdued, you reach the top where Kefka has anointed himself God. And this piece just goes nuts. It's a heavy metal rock organ, fast-paced, the, the melody has sections that really don't conclude or it feels like it has to speed up in order to get to a conclusion. It sounds like the inside of a mind of an insane nihilistic clown who thinks that murdering people for fun is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. It, it really does evoke his particular brand of aggressive madness, uh, of, of violent hatred, of... You know, I, I was kind of bored with my life atop this tower, uh, you know, shooting people for fun with my light of judgment. So I'm glad you're here. <laughs> now, now let's fight. Uh, right. he, he really, this piece really does a great job of pushing forward his theme of, you know, I have all the power and I'll use it however I want. And then there's a moment that frankly breaks my heart. It is, I think, one of the most beautiful melodic choices Uematsu's ever made in his career. In the middle of all of this madness, he gives us this sad, contemplative what-if. For me, this is Uematsu summing up this whole story and asking, why did this happen? How... Did we allow this to happen? Did we fail each other? Did we maybe fail Kefka? Did we not? Should, should we have destroyed him much earlier? Was it our inability to act sooner? Was it what happened to these people as young kids, particularly Tara, Celeste, and Kefka? Was it the pursuit of power that goes back thousands of years? But he takes this step back and with this remarkably somber melody asks us what was the point in all of this and it's not an easy question to answer and that he does it in the middle of the final battle blows me away like i said it, it breaks my heart like this is one of my favorite when you hear it on in certain interpretations too whether it's on the 
electric guitar version they do for the Black Mages uh-huh. or the Distant Worlds. Uh-huh. It just it sings out like the crow standing atop his his broken down home playing his electric guitar for his departed loved one. There's just something so sad but beautiful about this. This is not a lament for Kefka, I don't think, but a lament for everybody else. Everyone who has died because of the fascism that that grew up in this world that led to the, the madness of nihilism. To me, this part is don't forget what we're here for. Don't forget everything that has happened. Like we just talked about this piece is the culmination of the obstacles thrown in front of our characters. And I feel like this part of the fight against Kefka is you've climbed this tower of deific beings. It's taken, so far it's been a quarter hour of boss fight. Don't give up. We're almost there. Don't forget who who we're fighting for. Yeah, it's definitely... You know, a reminder that even if you win the day, win the battle, I mean, we're salvaging what's left here. We're we're trying to make sure the world survives, not flourishes, survives. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. While the podcast is free to listen to on archive.org or on Patreon, you can download it to your regular podcast services for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we discuss the greatest collection of character themes ever assembled. 